Ohio had an election yesterday, and we'll be talking about it. But really, all we're getting notes from people about are Deshaun Watson. That story just doesn't go away. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Estoffi, and Laura Johnston. In your circles, has the conversation this week been largely about Deshaun Watson? Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'll be part of the discussion here again today, but from a different angle. Let's begin. What's the bigger news this Wednesday morning after a rare August primary in Ohio? The winners of the statehouse races or how low the turnout was? Laura, very low voter turnout. Yeah, voter turnout was really low. In Cuyahoga County, it was about 10%. I was actually surprised to see it was that high because... I asked people today, yesterday, are you voting? And they're like, on what? You know, like people didn't realize there was an election. And obviously this is all the result of redistricting and pushing back and pushing back with the Ohio Redistricting Commission to the point where the federal court had to get involved, set this August date with gerrymandered districts. So yeah, a lot of people didn't know there was an election. The biggest race was probably Bride Rose Sweeney, at least in um, in Cuyahoga County, against Monique Smith. In those districts, they both kind of lost their home district in the redistricting. So the showdown of two incumbent Westside County Democrats and Sweeney beat Smith um, about 55% to 45%. And she obviously has a really recognizable name in Cuyahoga County. Her dad is longtime city councilman, now in county council. Yeah, though I'm not sure that that's a good name. I mean, there are a lot of people that look at Marty Sweeney as pretty bad guy. I mean, since he's joined the county council, they've gone with slush funds and they've gone with going against the whole point of the, the charter, which was to have a board of directors and not word kingmakers and and people who dole out the cash so i'm a little bit surprised this wasn't closer because monique smith did do a hell of a job the first time around she flipped the district yeah Yeah. she's the only person that went from uh, republican to democrat so you just lost a reliable democrat in cuyahoga county and um that's not something they wanted to do yeah i just i i don't think it's the last we've seen of her, but it was a resounding victory for Brad Rose Sweeney. And maybe it's because she has distanced herself from her father, that she's that she's her own person and people are not holding her father against her. Uh, the the 10%, how did that compare to four years ago? So four years ago, so I have statewide numbers. So turnout statewide was 142,989. That's about half of the ballots cast early in 2018. And just slightly more than half of the people who voted on May 3rd, which was our first part of the primary. But obviously, there were a whole lot more races on the ballot in that case. I mean, all the statewide races were there and uh, for Senate and and governor. And let's face it, there were a bunch of people that were still having trouble figuring even what district they were in. I heard from some people that said when they went to vote, they were the only person voting in their I, I know um, we were talking, I was talking to Kristen Davis, who manages our photographers, and she said, you know, it's going to be really hard to get photos. They're like, you know, we called the precincts. There's been like a couple of people. And I was like, well, get photos of empty voting booths, because that's the story, right? People are not paying attention right now. Yeah, I think they'll be paying attention in November. And, you know, come Labor Day, the the races are going to start to get hot. And we have some good races, at least in the Senate. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Could there be greater irony 
in the statewide race this November in which the state Republican Party is trying to block a candidate. Why, Lisa, is the Republican Party so worried about an independent candidate in the race for secretary of state, the guy who's a podcaster and conspiracy theorist? Well, actually, it's a woman. Um, But Ohio GOP Executive Director Justin Biss had a written complaint. He's challenging the validity of 65 signatures of candidate Terpeshor Tor Mara, who is a woman. Uh, She submitted 5,010 signatures. LaRose certified her candidacy as an independent but she didn't make the GOP primary ballot back in May, so she decided to run as an as an independent. LaRose certified that. But Biss's complaint alleges that there are several discrepancies in her 5,010 signatures. Improper first last names on the petition, including someone that just had an initial only for their first name. Somebody had Mr. as their first name. Uh, they didn't print their names. There were three forms alleged not to have been filled out by the signees themselves, and signatures didn't match what's on file. And Biss went on to say that, you know, Amara is really not an independent. It's pretty clear that she's not disaffiliated from the GOP. But Mara is a podcaster. She's an election denier. She's a QAnon believer who says she can travel through time. Um, She was also a witness in the attorney Sidney Powell suit to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Yeah. And there clearly is fear that she'll divide the Republican vote and possibly give it to the Democrat, which is why they're they're trying to to stop this. It's interesting that LaRose did certify her for the ballot. So the party is now going against the incumbent secretary of state and trying to boot her off. Yeah. I, I don't know what, you know, because earlier on, I, you know, I felt like LaRose's rhetoric about elections kind of ramped up and I thought maybe it's a way to keep this election denier off the ballot, but then he went and put it on anyway. So it'll be interesting to see if she draws any votes at all. Well, across the country, you've seen election deniers doing pretty well and largely Republican primaries. It's one of the most frightening things going. And there are national Democrats that have taken a real risk in supporting the wackiest of deniers, figuring that it'll help Democrats in November. But if that fails, we end up with the wackiest of deniers at the controls of government. So interesting to see what will happen here. I don't think anybody expects she can win, but if she can peel away votes from LaRose, then maybe LaRose doesn't win. It's today in Ohio. The Uvalde school massacre at the end of the last school year is on a lot of minds as we start talking about heading back to school as summer wanes. I know, Laura, you don't want to think about it, but it's right in front of you. And it's definitely on Governor Mike DeWine's mind. What did he announce yesterday to try and help out? He announced that about 11, well, 1,200 schools in 81 counties will receive nearly $47 million in grants, each up to $50,000, to help with school safety. So these are expenses associated with physical security enhancements, security cameras, public address systems, automatic door locks. And this was at the start of the school safety summit in Columbus. He also introduced Mary Davis. This is his pick for the new training officer of the Ohio School Safety Center that oversees the safety and crisis division created by House Bill 99. That's the same bill that gave school districts the option to arm teachers. So Davis is the assistant superintendent and curriculum director for the Corrections Training Academy at the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Corrections. That is a really long title. But she's going to lead the curriculum and training for teachers who are going to to be armed. So 
it'd be interesting to hear if we can get a read on this. Mike DeWine has teachers in his family. In his announcements, was he strongly advocating the arming of teachers? Is it Was it more, that's the law now, so I'm going to take steps to make it happen safely? He was very clear that no one is going to be forced to carry a firearm, that it was a completely local decision, and he's leaving it up to the districts to decide what is best for them, but that this is the support the state is offering. Uh, the state's going to hire 16 mobile field trainers who will work with the districts that permit teachers to carry guns and anyone district that allows them need to develop a school safety plan. They have to have a hotline if they don't already have them. And and DeWine's saying this is not just about school shooters. Obviously, that is on the top of every everyone's mind, but that this can help with any safety issues, you know, just like a good old fire drill. I mean, schools are still required to have plans for any kind of disaster. So um, but this is a hot topic right now. The New York Times had a really in-depth story on Sunday about states that are allowing teachers to be armed and focused on Ohio, specifically a kindergarten teacher named Mandy in rural Ohio, who's didn't seem like your typical average gun owner who is doing this because she wants to protect her students. The The issue isn't as real, I guess, in Northeast Ohio. Most of the districts that we've talked to have said they're not permitting teachers to carry guns. Have we had any that have said they will or will encourage it, maybe Strongsville or somewhere? <laughs> Strongsville would be a good guess, right? Uh, we are still working on that story. I have not seen any district openly say they're going to do it, but we're still reporting it. And I think the issue with rural Ohio is they say it takes so long for help to get there, right? Like we, if you're talking about my town, the, the police department is literally less than a mile from every school. And I know we have issues about, you know, look at Uvalde and, and how helpful the police were there, but the response time is very quick. In places where it's not so quick, they worry that they won't have the help that they need. I wonder if if districts in our area were to allow this, whether you would see some parents move their kids to private school because they really don't want their kids in a classroom where somebody's carrying a gun. I, I think that's a very real fear that parents will have to grapple with. I'm, I mean, how, how do you think your town would, I, I think your town is one where they said they're not, but how do you think parents in your town would respond if all of a sudden the guns were permitted and teachers were carrying them? Oh, I think the school board meeting would be overflowing with angry parents. Yeah. Okay. It's today in Ohio. How fast does the city of Cleveland want to convert the fleet of vehicles serving its utilities departments to electric and how much, Courtney, will that cost? Yeah, so this plan we learned about from the city of Cleveland in detail yesterday during a committee hearing involves the beginning steps of converting the utilities department's fleet to all electric. Now, there are, it sounds like hundreds, maybe even going on thousand vehicles employed by CPP, Cleveland Water and Water Pollution Control. So it sounds like this is going to be a lengthy process over time. But what we have right now is the beginning of that process. 24 all-electric vehicles are currently on order. We don't know when they're going to be delivered. There's supply chain issues like we all know about. But this first batch kind of starts the conversion of that fleet of hundreds of vehicles. And to get things in place to be able to accommodate this in the future and to accommodate these first 24 vehicles when they do come in to the city, the city needs to put down a bunch of infrastructure to charge the vehicles. And the tab for that infrastructure 
and for 31 charging stations that would service this this fleet, $1.4 million. So not chump change, but the city's laying the groundwork so they have what they need in place for the future as they make this move over time. But it does make sense in a city that has dedicated itself to sustainability and a city that runs an electric utility to be leading this way, lead by example, by having electric cars and showing how they work, electric trucks, whatever it is. Um, it makes sense, right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, there wasn't, there wasn't really pushback when the council committee was hearing it on, on the move towards electric and, and looking at the environment and the, and the green moves here. But I will say, you know, one councilman, Mike Palencic, was really nervous about the price tag for this. He, you know, we we don't have a lot of resources in the city of Cleveland. There are big upfront costs here. What is the trade-off? And that was the concern. You know, at the same time, from the other direction, another council member, Jenny Spencer, was all about this move, but she kind of noted that until CPP gets out of its contract with that coal-fired power plant, you can plug in all you want, but are we really going green the way we ought to be? The, this is for all the utilities, not just the electric utility, right? Yes, this is for it, the, the charging stations will be installed at water department facilities and CPP facilities. I would imagine the biggest user of it because it's such a massive system is the water department, which actually has the money to pay for it. This doesn't come out of the taxpayer's pocket. It comes out of the ratepayers' pocket, all the water customers and electric customers, and to a lesser extent, I guess, sewer customers would pay that bill, right? Yeah, it, it seems like some of it could be financed by, by bonds, but again, that would be through the water department, I believe, or the utilities department in general. And ultimately, over the years, this would save the ratepayers a fortune because the, the cost of fueling the vehicles would be cheaper. Well, that's kind of the trade-off they discussed yesterday. Yeah, you know, the d- utilities director said the trade-offs here are something we'll be keeping an eye on and we'll be making prudent fiscal decisions as we take the step towards green as well. Okay. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Mental health has been one of the key stories of the pandemic with a lot of demand and little supply. John Oliver dedicated his show Sunday to this problem. Now the nonprofit Eye on Ohio Newsroom has calculated how bad things are in Ohio. Lisa, it's bad. Yeah, it's shocking how bad. And actually this predates the pandemic. So this story comes to us from Ion, Ohio, uh, with in collaboration with the Cleveland Observer. Uh, according to Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services data, between 2013 and 2019, the need for behavioral health services rose 353%. Then if you look at 2021, that demand increased 70% for adult and, adult and youth mental health services, went up 60% more in addiction treatment areas. Um, the Centers in Cleveland CEO, Eric Morse, says de- demand is definitely up and COVID absolutely made it worse. And he said that hiring and retention of mental health workers is their number one issue. There are a lot of headwinds in this, in this profession. There's low pay, there's worker burnout. 
a lot of uh, mental health workers got used to he- telehealth during the pandemic, and now they don't want to go back to making home visits where actually the most help occurs in these in-person home visits. They have large caseloads of 100 or more people because of short staffing. So they're trying to figure out how they're going to do this. The Community Counseling Center of Ashtabula CEO Paul Bellino says they're trying to fill 11 positions right now. That's 10% of their workforce. So what they've done is they've begun an internship program. And there's also a new social work program at Kent State, which will hopefully funnel graduates into into the profession. And uh, Morse with Centers in Cleveland says, you know, they're trying to be more present in schools to hype up a mental health career or behavioral health career, but salaries are still an issue. So that sounds like that's kind of one of the big sticking points. Um, Mayor DeWine, Mayor DeWine, Governor Mike DeWine did uh, allocate $85 million for scholarships scholarships and internships in the mental health field. So we'll have to see if it helps. But yeah, I mean, this is a high stress uh, profession with low pay, not a real draw there. Well, and higher stress than ever now because people are right. clamoring for the treatment. And who hasn't noticed during the pandemic, the, the people around them having more anxiety? I mean, this has been one of the most challenging times of, of the recent decades. And when people reach out for help and they can't get it, What's the alternative? What do they do? Turn to booze or something? And this is, you should be able to get a therapist when you need the therapy. And we did salute Mike DeWine for trying to help with some of the stimulus money. But it sounds like based on this reporting, it'll take years to to upend this, this supply problem. Yeah. And again, I think it comes down to money. I mean, a lot of, you know, social workers, behavioral health people are not paid a lot of money, you know, in certain settings. So, I mean, they really have to address that, that issue. I mean, high stress, high pay, it kind of goes together. Uh, Great for Ion Ohio to tackle this. It's good, good content. We're happy to be able to circulate it to our readers. It's today in Ohio. The story of the week continues to be Deshaun Watson's six-game suspension, and we took the temperature of fans on both sides of the issue. Courtney, we've all been talking about this all week, but you haven't had a chance to weigh in. What are people telling us? Yes, so we had uh, our reporter, John Tucker, go out and talk to just a bunch of folks all over Northeast Ohio to see what they make of the outcome here. And as you kind of expect, we've got folks on both sides of the issue as we've seen for the past several months. So, you know, that line in the sand seems to continue now that we have an answer from the from the arbiter. So, you know, John talked to, you know, I thought one interesting interview was a Brunswick auto shop owner who had said, you know, they were ready to to see the Browns excel now that now that we know what the suspension's gonna look like, how that's gonna impact their game. And he had said, you know, everyone's sick of the me too stuff we don't care yeah could you believe yeah. that could you believe that comment yeah. we're done with me too now we'll get back to harassing women and 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 sexually assault. i mean what what kind of line is that we're all sick of the me too stuff yeah i don't i don't i don't know but i mean i think the haslams were kind of betting on this when they brought deshaun in right the scandal would blow through and and people who are going to go back to the game we're going to go back to the game anyways. Um, but but that's not to say there aren't, you know, plenty of naysayers out there in greater Cleveland. You know, John talked to a clinical therapist in Cleveland Heights, diehard fan since childhood saying she's not going to, you know, support the team anymore. How can I cheer for an accused sex offender who's a, who's our quarterback? 
you know, other other folks more on the fan side said they were one one guy who goes to a lot of road games dresses up said he was happy as a schoolgirl. Uh, John talked to a season ticket holder from Shaker Heights, and he has his Watson jersey ordered and ready. And and he said my excitement went went up even more when I learned he'd be back on the field for Game Seven. You know, at the same time, like we said, you know, the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center came out with a pretty strong statement. Uh, a licensed massage therapist was saying that this suspension just lets this behavior perpetuate and continue. And and she thinks, you know, it'll make it more dangerous for massage therapy professionals like herself. I don't know. In some ways, I think this is the worst case scenario for the Haslam's. If you judging by subtext where I get a lot of responses every day, it's overwhelmingly in opposition to Deshaun Watson. The problem is the judge said he did it. He did everything. Doug Maurice did the story we talked about yesterday. The verdict is clear. The only place where the evidence was considered, a former judge came out and said he did it. But then the punishment for people that are that are watching this is far too light. And so there's there's a still palpable anger. I thought this story, once this was resolved this week, would start to to lose some air. But I I don't I think it's worse. I think the gasoline's on the fire. Well, well, we don't know how the NFL is going to rule. I mean, we've, we're waiting in the next couple of days to see what the NFL says. So it's really not over and, yet. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'll just say that, I mean, this is like the like you said, Chris, this is the first time we've gotten a decision from an authority figure who reviewed some kind of evidence gathered. And the conclusion was that he knowingly sexually assaulted people. Like, I, I guess that's not going to make the scandal go away when you have that kind of a, a bombshell, I suppose. Yeah, that. Yeah, her opinion was very clear, and that that was what was so striking is that he did it. He did everything he was accused of, but I'm I'm bound by precedent. I can't punish him more, and this is the NFL's fault because they really didn't contemplate this kind of thing. So I and, and Lisa, you're right. They have what till tomorrow, right, to decide. But Correct. but if they appeal then it's basically saying, yeah, that whole system we put in place to be independent, it doesn't mean anything. And we're just going to take matters in our own hands, which has its own downside. Players will feel like that the, they're not, they didn't bargain in good faith. Uh, I, I, some of the comments in that story though, especially the me too comment was shocking. The other one, Courtney was the guy who said they'll all get back on the bus and I'm the bus driver. Right. Wasn't that one of the Yeah, people are ready to go and cheer someone who a judge called and ew. I don't know. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, no. It's a very, very disturbing situation. It's today in Ohio. How is an Ohio Supreme Court justice comparing abortion to slavery? Something Republicans elsewhere in the country also have been doing. Laura, it's it's we, we try not to put light on ridiculously false statements but every once in a while somebody says something so astounding they're running for office you figure the voters need to know yeah laura hancock did a really good explanatory story on this this is justice patrick fisher he's this republican seeking re-elections for supreme court and he spoke at a delaware city republican club on july 14th and he compared roe versus wade to a pair of supreme court decisions that basically upheld slavery and segregation so he's 
he's using a legal argument from Supreme Court cases to make his point. And this is called uh, substantive due process is the basis for the Dred Scott decision and Plessy versus Ferguson. And he said his point wasn't to compare abortion to slavery, but to question the legal underpinnings of those decisions. Of course, you put abortion and slavery in the same sentence. I don't care what nuance you say you're trying to draw. You're putting two really big, you know, issues, American issues together. And this is a Republican trend. So J.D. Vance, obviously, is a Republican running for the U.S. Senate. He told the Catholic Current that abortion and slavery were comparable. And while the people who obviously suffer the most are those subjected to it, I think this morally distorting effect on an entire society. I, I just can't believe they're doing this. They're just diminishing what slavery meant. Lifetimes yeah. of bondage for people and comparing it to what has long been considered a medical procedure. It's one of those, you would have never thought this would happen in your lifetime, but it's happening. They're out there making these speeches. And I guess for some people it resonates. Yeah. This came in response to a question that somebody had at this Republican club asking abortion rights will be determined by the Ohio Supreme court next year. So like, really, that was not the question this guy asked. But this is what he got into about substantive due process, this legal theory that allows courts to protect rights that aren't spelled out in the Constitution. And Fisher said it was controversial. So that raises an entirely different question, right? So should a Supreme Court running, Supreme Court justice running for reelection be telling people what he thinks about something that's probably going to come before the Supreme Court? And he said he can't, people can't assume how he would rule on abortion cases based on his remarks about a legal theory, but come on. Yeah, mm. that's just not true. Um, mm. it, it was a surprise. And you're right, Laura Hancock did a nice job on the story. It's on Cleveland.com. It's today in Ohio. We seem to accept that the coronavirus pandemic has become the coronavirus endemic, meaning people have learned to live with it and accepted it. And as we all know, lots of people that avoided it for two and a half years have been dropping in the past few months. That doesn't mean, though, that we don't have a lot to learn. And President Joe Biden's second round of positive tests has a lesson in it. Lisa, what do we know about these rebound infections? Yeah, apparently there was some connection between rebound COVID infections, such as President Joe Biden experienced, and the drug that he was on, Paxlovid, which is uh, manufactured by Pfizer. It's an antiviral treatment. But a study by Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, which is awaiting peer review, found that COVID rebound effects are not unique to Paxlovid at all. Uh, in their study, they found that rebound occurred in 5% of patients 30 days after treatment for, for Paxlovid, but rebound occurred in 8% of patients who were on the Merck drug Molnupiravir. But they said that patients had more comorbidities like cancer, heart disease, and immune disorders. So the, I guess this has become standard. If you test positive, you're going and getting one of these antiviral drugs to reduce the severity of it. These drugs are readily available now. That's why we're studying them? That's correct. Yes, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Trying to clear my throat. But they're saying that even though there are rebound issues in a small percentage of patients on these two drugs, hospitalization rates are less than 1% in all COVID rebound patients. So these antivirals still are very good protection from severe disease. Okay. Well, it's a new trend that we're seeing in it where people are getting some of the rebound uh, and the drugs may have something to do with it. It's today in Ohio. 
E.F. Boyd and Son Funeral Home, the oldest black-owned funeral home in greater Cleveland, has seen more than its share of results of Cleveland's rampant gun violence, helping no end of families deal with the tragedy. So what is the funeral home doing now to help slow the violence? Courtney? Yeah, this is interesting. The funeral home, which opened its doors in 1905, I think that's that's wild and pretty cool. They're still at business. You know, they're trying to raise awareness about what they're seeing what we're all seeing a spike in violence over the last couple years. And so they've put a billboard up uh, between Woodland Ave and Opportunity Corridor in Cleveland to kind of um, tie together this violence with the ultimate fallout, which which leads to families coming to them for funeral services. You know, Marcella Boyd Cox, the vice president over there at the funeral home, talked to reporter Alexis Oatman about about the burden violence places on families. And, and often they see folks who, who aren't prepared to, to come in and, and, and lay out funeral arrangements and, and the big cost that comes along with it. They have a front row seat to this and they're trying to raise awareness through this billboard. Yeah. It's uh, everybody's so frustrated about the gun violence because anything Cleveland's tried to do to reduce it, the legislature has blocked because it all has to do with guns but I doubt there's any other agency in Cleveland that has dealt with this more, right? Because they're the ones that have to help the families say goodbye to people who have been killed by the violence. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, funeral homes play a very important role in society. But, you know, you think about police and the prosecutors and the families. You don't really think about how much of an up front seat, up front, front row seat these folks have to the problems that that we're dealing with all the tears and all of the the anguish of families that have lost their sons and daughters to the violence okay that's today in ohio and that's it for a wednesday thank you lisa thank you courtney thank you laura thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast